Well, welcome everybody to our seventh week of Marriage Matters. And let me just announce a couple of things and then we'll get into today's lesson. This Wednesday, our midweek program resumes. We didn't have it last week because of Thanksgiving, but our midweek program resumes uh, Wednesday at 7. We have uh, ministries for everybody, so please, uh, we'd love to have you come. And then just to mark down in uh, three weeks, three weeks from this evening, we have our annual Adult Christmas Fellowship. That'll be in this room. We have a paragraph about that in the program. And the Christmas Fellowship is food. In that paragraph, we tell you what food we ask you to bring. Uh, and we divide it up by last name of the alphabet for some of the things you need to bring. And then uh, also you bring a white elephant gift for a white elephant gift exchange. And as Larry explained in the first hour during the announcements, a white elephant gift is not something you buy. It's something you want to get rid of. It's uh, And you wrap it. You don't put your name on it. And you bring it. You put it in the pile. And we always have a good time with that. So that will be three weeks from this evening at uh, 7.30. And the first Sunday in January is our periodic newcomers orientation. We take four Sundays. And I take newcomers to a different part of the building, one of our classrooms. And during those four weeks, we go through a booklet of material that tells you who we are and what we believe and where we came from and what we hope to accomplish in the future. So if you've never taken our newcomers orientation, you're trying to find a church, this is to aid you with information about who we are. We do not hassle you after you've taken the class. I don't contact you at all. You take the, you take it, you get the information, ask whatever questions you want to ask, and then if you want to take next steps, you let me know about that. So it's for information only, but if you're looking for a place to serve and grow, then I think it's prerequisite uh, and important for you to know who we are and what we're about before you take that step. So that will be on the 3rd of January and then for the next three Sundays after that during this, this hour. All right, we have seen that marriage is for the purpose of each helping the other to become more like Christ. That's how we've defined marriage. Marriage is for the purpose of each spouse helping the other to become more like Christ. Now, that's a different definition than you'll certainly hear in the secular world. And frankly, it's a different definition, unfortunately, than you'll hear often even in the the Christian world. Marriage is often seen as utilitarian. That is, it's a utility. It's it's a tool uh, that we use for, for our own desires rather than what God has told us we're, we're to be about. And so you'll find all kinds of marriage books that define marriage in that sort of self-centered way. But God created us for the purpose of reflecting his character. Uh, we saw that for a good bit this morning in our first hour, if you were with us. He made us in his image. Humanity alone, among all of God's creatures, are made in his image. So we are made for the purpose of reflecting God's character back to him. And he has given each for the other, and he has given the institution of marriage in order for us to help each other do that. He's given male and female in his image, and male and female, man and wife, uh, uh, man and woman, are to, to help each other hone the image of God. And it's especially needful now with the entrance of sin into God's world. The Bible story is that God made us without sin, but with the capacity for sin. We know that that capacity was fulfilled and carried out. And so we, all of the children of our first parents, come into this world 
with a disposition toward toward sin. And now with that, the purpose for which we were made, reflecting God back to him, thinking like he thinks, talking like he would talk, acting like he would act, becomes all the more difficult. And therefore, it becomes all the more important that iron sharpen iron in our relationships and especially in the marriage relationship. So marriage is each helping the other to become more like more like Christ. And to broaden that, relationship in general is for discipleship. So it is not just the marriage relationship, which is, of course, the uh, most intimate of human relationships, but uh, it is relationship in, in general. Any person with whom you have a relationship, you are called into that relationship for the purpose of helping to disciple that person. And I mentioned last week that disciple it means to be a learner, to be a follower. And so you are helping each other in that relationship, whatever the nature of the relationship. Uh, if it allows you time and allows you interaction, that time and interaction is to be for the purpose of you to help that person uh, learn of and follow Christ and then to become more more like him as you learn of him. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, what if I'm in a relationship with somebody who's not a follower of Christ? They're not a believer. Well, then your objective is for them to become a believer. <laughs> your objective is to evangelize that person so that they do come to Christ. And then still relationship then is for discipleship. But there is a major inhibitor to that process taking place. If our relationships are for the purpose of us to become more like Christ, to become learners and followers of Christ, the marriage relationship is each helping the other to conform to the image of Jesus. If that's all true, then what keeps that from happening? And the inhibitor, of course, is is sin. And sin begins, though, in the heart. So it's important, and we have stressed in this class, it is important for us to recognize that contrary to what most of us think of when we think of sin, sin is not first what we do. Sin is first who we are. Sin is first who we are. Hear this. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. I'll say that again because it confuses me. You're not a sinner because you sin. What makes you a sinner is not that you sinned. You sin because that's what you are. That We sin because that's what we are. So it's our nature. We are born into this world with a sin nature, all of us. So it is natural, natural for us to, to, then, to then sin. And so sin should not be thought of in your mind because it's not from God's perspective. It's not first and primarily what we do. Now, here's why that's important. Because if we think of sin primarily in terms of what we do, it will narrow the scope of sin. And it will narrow the scope of the things that need to be reconciled as a result of sin. If it's only the stuff I do, the stuff I actually carry out is only a small percentage of the stuff I say or the stuff I think or the stuff I have attitude about. So if you only make it that narrow scope of what you do, then you won't see the need to reconcile on things that the Bible says are actually sin. Sins of attitude, sins of sins of uh, word, and then, of course, sins of deed as well. So it begins in the heart. 
And what happens in the heart, in the innermost recesses of who we are, that's the way the Bible uses the word heart, as the control center of the person. It's not the physical organ beating in the chest, but it's the control center of the, of the person. The Bible can speak of as a man thinks in his heart, because so is he, because it's the control center of the person. So what happens in our, our hearts, in our innermost being? Well, we have desires. Desires for what we want. And those desires for what we want easily morph into idolatrous desires. Now, I've explained that, but I'll try to do so quickly again because it is a key concept for us. In our hearts, we all have desires, but because we have sinful hearts that that do not put God first, then our desires easily morph into idolatrous desires. And sometimes even desires for good things become idolatrous. So I've given you examples of how you may want, you may desire to come home in the evening and have just peace and quiet when you arrive home. You know, and you're anticipating before you get home what that peace and quiet is going to look like. You can already see the easy chair. You can already see the tall glass of of Coke, legal beverage. Your slippers are there. The dog brings you the paper. I mean, you've you've got it all envisioned. Now, is that a bad, is that an evil desire? Well, of course not. If you've you've worked all day, you want to get some rest, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But that can easily morph into an idolatrous desire when you walk through the door. And none of the stuff that you envisioned in your mind is there. And in fact, the place is a wreck. And you're wondering who set off the bomb that put all this stuff all over the floor. What's going on? And now you're in a mood. And your spouse comes and tries to explain, and you're ticked. And your tickedness comes out in your attitude and in your, in your words and maybe in your uh, even violent behavior. Now, that was a good desire that morphed into an idolatrous desire. And how do you know that it becomes an idolatrous desire? When you're willing to sin in the absence of having it. Or when you're willing to sin in order to get it. In the absence of having that peace and quiet, you came home and you sinned. You sinned in your attitude. You sinned in your words. You you perhaps sinned in your actions. And in so doing, you've revealed something that's going on on the inside, in the heart. This has become an idolatrous desire. So hear that, friends. Have now this biblical broad view of what sin is, not the narrow view. It's just the things that I do that are obviously sin. And if I haven't robbed anybody and if I haven't killed anybody, then I haven't sinned. That's not the way the Bible defines it. Sin emanates from the heart. It begins with desires, and it's often good desires that become idolatrous. So I've given you all in the past, if you've been with us, the anatomy of of an idol, the way an idol is manufactured in the heart. And it has six steps to it, six steps to the development of an idol in your heart. Now, these are not in your notes. So if you care to jot this down, that would be a good idea. It starts with this. It starts with I want. I want. Or you could put I desire. And remember, the thing you want, the thing you desire, may be a good thing. It may not be an illicit thing. It may be for something as 
uh, as simple as respect from your children. I desire, I want respect from my children or I want respect from my spouse. That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. But remember, it becomes idolatrous when you're willing to sin in the absence of having it. So you want respect from your spouse. You perceive your spouse didn't give you the respect in this particular instance. And so you fly off the handle. In, in, in getting angry in that response, you have shown that that has become an idolatrous desire because you're willing to sin in the absence of having it. I want or I desire. That's how it starts. But then that moves to the next step. It's I need. And this is not just, this is not just a desire. I need this. In order for me to function as I ought to function, I need this particular thing to happen. And you'll have plenty of people, plenty of self-help books, plenty of Oprah shows. Is she still on TV? Thanks for confessing that you know that. I set you up for that. But you'll have plenty of emotive kinds of psychologized kind of shows that will tell you all of the needs you have. They'll invoke, without his name, Maslow's hierarchy of, anybody know what that is? Hierarchy of what? Needs. These are the things you've got to have. And beyond just, you know, food and shelter and all of that, you've got to have, you know, your uh, self-respect and so on. You've got to have these. And these are needs according to Maslow and, and according to secular psychology. Now, if you're going to follow Jesus, and you're going to follow the Bible, you're going to have a hard time finding any of that stuff in a concordance or a Bible dictionary. But we're people who want to see our desires as legitimized as needs. And the third step then is not just I want and I need, but I must. I must have this thing. I'm not going to be able to carry out my responsibilities if I don't have fill-in-the-blank. And that's how important it has become to me. Now, you could, if you're just alone on an island, if you were just alone on an island, you didn't interact with anybody else, you could have this stuff going on. You know, I want this, I need this, I must have this. You could be convincing yourself that whatever it is is something that you absolutely is indispensable for your well-being. But if you were all by yourself, you know, have at it. But, of course, none of us are on an island, and we're not in this class because we uh, are without relationships. All of us here have relationships even if we're not married, and especially those of us who are married. So now all of that, the I want and I need and I must, is all happening within your heart, but in the context of a relationship with somebody else. Which brings you to the fourth step. You, now before I tell you what the next word is, just notice how the first three were I. I want, I need, I must. That's all internal, that's all me deliberating about this, that's all the my heart churning and manufacturing this stuff, that's what's happening there. But then the fourth step goes to you, because we're in relationship. So I've now... I now have something or some things that I must have. And we're in relationship. So guess what? 
that now creates a requirement, an obligation on your part. You should. You should. And you should what? You should supply it. Whatever the it is. You should. And then the fifth step is you didn't. You should. But you didn't. You failed. You have failed to meet my standard. You have failed to meet the standard, of course, that is this idolatrous thing that I have going on in my heart. But you should, but you didn't. So now I'm disappointed with you in the best case. I'm angry with you in the more extreme case. I'm livid at you. And which gets me then to the sixth step. You'll pay. You'll pay. You will pay for not having provided what I have convinced myself I must have. And you haven't provided it now. What you've got between at that fifth step, which is you didn't. Here's what you've got there. You might put a 5A in there if you want. But what you've got in there is the, is the gap between my expectations and reality. Because I have these desires and you didn't fulfill them. Those are my expectations. I'm convinced they're legitimate. Not only are they legitimate, I must have them. And Oprah told me that I must have them. So I've got these expectations, but my expectations have not been met. Here's the reality. Here's what you've actually supplied, whatever that is. And there's a gap between them. And expectations minus reality equals trouble. Expectations minus reality equals trouble. Sort of as an aside, but this is why I counsel people to manage their expectations. Because, see, I can control expectations. Very often I can't control reality, especially when it involves other people. I certainly can control my actions and reactions and how that contributes to the reality of my circumstance. But then I've got another person or persons involved, and I can't control that. So if I can't control the reality, what I should control is the expectations. And I should bring the expectations in line with, with the reality. No, there's a bunch to be said there, isn't there? Think, I mean, think about that. Bringing my expectations in line with, with what I got. And you know what that's called? That's called biblical contentment. Bringing my expectations in line with what I got is nothing more than biblical contentment. And you will find contentment in a concordance. That's in the Bible. I had someone come to me a few months ago and say to me, much to this individual's credit, that they had recognized what was going on in their heart. And they just said, I'm discontent with my circumstances. And we talked about their circumstances and we went through what was happening. And I tried to offer a biblical perspective on our lives and where they fit into God's story and so on. But then I went to Philippians 4, Philippians 4, and you 
If you want to read that on your own, I would encourage you to do that. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Now, Philippians 4 is a chapter that some of you are familiar with. In verse number 4, it says this, Be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious about anything. And it says to rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again. Rejoice. And it instructs us that we don't need to worry. Be anxious about anything. And then the one who wrote it, Paul, begins to give his own testimony down in verse 10. In verse 11, he says, I have learned, I know what it is to be well fed and to be hungry. I know what it is to have plenty and to be in want. But I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Wow, what a beautiful thing. To be able to be content with what I got. So Paul says that. And then he says in verse 13, that famous verse that many of us know, but out of context. I can do all things through Christ. Who gives me strength. We quote, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, but we don't connect it to the verses right before it, which are all about being content with what you got. What he's saying is, it's because of Christ that I can be content with what I've got. Not, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, and Michigan's going to whip on Ohio State. Apparently. (laughs) That doesn't work. You know, I'm going to be able to accomplish this thing, this goal, because Christ gives me strength. Now, praying and asking God to help you with all your endeavors is all a good thing. But I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Is about being able to be content with what he has given. And when, when we get to the you didn't, number five of those six, what we've got is the gap between expectations and, and reality. And what we have to do is bring those in line. So I spoke with this person. And I just simply went through that. And something happened that I wish happened every time I counsel somebody. This dear, this dear sister just said, that settles it. That's what the Lord says. That's what I need to do. And that's what I'm going to do by God's grace. Now, usually that ain't the way it goes. Usually I don't get, okay, that's what God says. You explained it clearly, that's what God says, that's what I'm going to do. Usually I get, okay, but did I tell you about the person I'm married to? Did I tell you about the boss I've got at work and what a jerk he is? Because Paul, the guy who wrote that, didn't have my boss. And doesn't have my spouse and doesn't have my kids and my circumstances. Clearly, he would not be saying, I've learned to be content in any and every situation if he had my situation. Right. He doesn't have your situation. He's got it way worse. Way worse. When he writes that, when he writes that, he's chained to a Roman guard under house arrest for doing nothing other than preaching the gospel of Jesus. Ain't nobody here got it like that. When Les Olala was here with us two months ago, some of you remember him. Do you guys remember him saying, I don't remember, he did four sessions for us. I don't remember which one it was. But he said, you know, I can't wait to get to heaven and tell Paul how hard I had it down here. 
We're chuckling, but you know, can you imagine? Can you imagine going up to the great apostle and saying, oh man, I am glad we're up here. <laughs> you, let me tell you my story, Paul. And Paul's going, you know, I wrote a few books. I spilled a few ink, a, little, a bit of ink in the Bible. And I told you how many times I was beaten and how many times I was shipwrecked and left for dead. And by the way, I got up here by being summarily executed by having my head chopped off. So go ahead. Tell me about your circumstances again. So I want, I need, I must. You should, you didn't. You'll pay. And, and many marriages and some marriages, I would hazard to guess, here in this room are in you'll pay mode. You're paying for what you didn't supply. I'll say one other thing about that. It goes from the personal, the first person pronoun, I, to the second person, you. It goes from that sometimes imperceptibly. That is, sometimes what I want and what I need and what I must have haven't been clearly articulated. This has all been going on in my mind. And so I haven't said to you, you, I wish you would do this. I've simply had this going on in my heart and I'm seething about it. The fact that you didn't do it. And I'm in you'll pay mode. And sometimes couples haven't even communicated that. Now, since we were made to reflect God back to God, since we were made to display God's character in his world and to him, then it's the character of God that defines the kinds of things that we need to have reconciled. The kinds of things that we ask forgiveness for. And that brings you to the page that is the first page of your notes, page 45. Because this lesson is about forgiveness. To forgive is divine. You'll know the, the phrase, to err is human. But to forgive is divine. Now, why? Why is to forgive God-like? Well, it's because we humans have such a hard time doing it. But Christians can do these God-like things. That's what we're called to do. And since we're made to reflect God back to God, it's the character of God that defines what we ask forgiveness for. Which means I've got more to ask forgiveness for, not less. Because remember I was saying earlier, you can have this very narrow definition, it's only the stuff I do. But if the character of God is the standard for what determines that I've sinned, well now I've sinned a whole lot more than I even realized. Because I sin in my thoughts, I sin in my attitude, I sin in my words. And those don't, and when they don't conform to the character of God, then they are things that require forgiveness. Not the way we most often do it. We have this narrow definition of what requires reconciliation, what requires forgiveness. Things like consequences. You know, if I don't think anybody got hurt by it, then don't worry about it. There weren't the, the consequences of what I said or what I did weren't that bad. So just quit your whining. But see, the consequences as determined by us are not the standard. It's the character of God. And the question is, in my attitude, in my words, in my actions, did those conform to the character of God? And if they didn't, even if the consequences by God's grace were relatively small, it's still a sin that needs to be reconciled. It's not consequences. It's not making up our own standard about what constitutes something that needs to be 
to be reconciled. And so on page 45, we need to learn to forgive as God forgives. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Embracing what Jesus has done for us and extending that in thought, word, and deed to others is the essence of forgiveness. In forgiving one another, we, in a sense, draw on the forgiveness Jesus has given us by making a decision to release another from the penalty of sin. Rather than pushing each other away, we push sin and judgment away and draw near to each other. Put as simply as possible, forgiveness is releasing the other from the penalty of sin so the relationship can be restored. Or, to put it still another way, it's getting out of step number six, you'll pay. It's releasing that so that the relationship can be restored. Now, let me just emphasize how important this is. I I suppose it's obvious how important it is on a practical level in the marriage relationship that we be able to do this. I trust. But let me up the stakes a bit here. This is uh, so important that Jesus says, if you can't do it, then it's evidence you don't belong to me. You're familiar with what we call the Lord's Prayer. Um, I say what we call the Lord's Prayer because it's a prayer that he gave to the disciples. I like to call it the disciples' prayer. But our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us, you remember, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that there are six petitions in that. And then the sixth one is deliver us from the evil one. There are six. The fifth of those is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's the fifth of the six requests in that model prayer. But here's the thing. It's the only one of the six that Jesus expands on. That's how important it is. When he finishes the prayer in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 6, in verses 14 and 15, he says, if you're unwilling to forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. That's heady stuff, isn't it? If I'm unwilling to forgive and you are unwilling to forgive, Jesus says, that says something about your status and your relationship with me. So please, friends, understand that what we are talking about here is of paramount importance for your relationship with God and then, of course, practically for your relationship with with others, especially your spouse. So on page 45, we are called to do something when we forgive. And it's important to have practical steps in mind as you learn to forgive your spouse as God has forgiven you. And here are four things that God has done. God decided to release us from the penalty of our sin. God's forgiveness is based on the fact that Jesus paid our penalty. Our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. Because we ourselves have been forgiven, we can extend forgiveness to the one who has wronged us. Sticking to that decision requires us to refuse to dwell on how we've been wronged or bring it to mind. This, that means, for example, no subtle digs and not using it as a trump card in the next argument. You know, so people keep 
mental or sometimes physical lists. You know, cool, keep doing it. Go ahead. All you're doing is building up more ammo for me. Next time I need to bring that out to trump you. But God decided to release us. Now, I'm just going to go through these four, and then at the end of the four, I'm going to give you some additional things that are not in the notes. But how did God forgive? He decided to release us from the penalty. Secondly, he decided to sacrifice in order to forgive. God decided to absorb the cost of our sin. Repairing the relationship means accepting the wound and choosing to draw near to the one who has sought to harm him or us. God doesn't seek revenge or look for opportunities to pay us back for our sin. Likewise, we have to choose to draw near to our spouse without the lingering threat of some form of payback. We too will need to be willing to absorb the cost, facing the pain of the offense and the discomfort of talking about it. So absorbing it means there is that justice may not be fully done as you might like it. And, and I, have to, I have to admit to you that is, that is, well, I'm sure it's true for everyone. It is certainly true for me. That is hard. Justice and a sense of right and wrong has been violated. And that justice needs to be done in my mind. And then the Bible comes along and James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And I go, why do you have to put that in there? But God decided to absorb, and we're going to have to absorb. Thirdly, God decided to accomplish good through our sinfulness. God doesn't just forgive our sins, but promises to use even our messes for good. When we forgive our spouses, we have to trust that God will work for our good and the good of our marriage. Forgiveness becomes an opportunity to reflect the image of Christ and to mature our faith. You have to trust that God will both heal your hurts and use your sacrifice to restore your relationship. When you forgive, you have to trust that you're not being a fool, but that God will work through your forgiveness. Your forgiveness does not guarantee a change in your spouse, of course, but it does guarantee that you will grow and that you will be protected from bitterness. Trust that forgiveness is the path that God provides to draw back the curtains that separate you and your spouse. And then fourthly, God decided to allow us to grow. God's forgiveness is ongoing because we, of course, continue to sin. When we forgive our spouses, we can't expect perfection, but have to be willing to let them grow. We have to understand that even our own ability to forgive will have to grow. It's best not to think now of these four things as sequential steps, but as different aspects of forgiveness. In the process of forgiveness, there'll be times when you'll need to focus on one more than others. You'll likely have to revisit each one numerous times. Now, I'd like to give you some things from a group called Peacemaker Ministries, peacemaker.net, if you go online. And they have a number of helpful resources with regard to reconciliation in relationships of all types. And, and by the way, even business relationships. They, they have a, they have a, a ministry for arbitration and conciliation at Peacemaker. So if you're in business and you have some dispute and you know maybe it's with a professing believer, you don't want to go to court about it, a la 1 Corinthians 6, but it's something that needs to be fixed, they can help you. They can help you with that. So they have a lot of helpful resources, but let me give you a couple of them here. They have what they call the seven A's 
of uh, confession. The seven A's, the letter A, they all start with A, all seven of them. The seven A's of confession. And the idea of these seven things is, here are suggestions for you when you're the person who is going to ask for forgiveness. Here are these seven things that you should do. First is address everyone involved. Address everyone involved. That is, all those that you have affected by what you did. So you may have affected your spouse, but you also may have affected your kids. Or your neighbors. Or the or the police. Address everyone involved. Second, avoid if, but, and maybe. And this is where I like to say, don't use weasel words. When you go and ask forgiveness, you know, it's not, it's not, maybe I did. Are you owning it or not? Did you do it? Did you think it? Did you... Have the attitude? Did you say it or not? And if you did, then say so straight up. Avoid if, but, and maybe. Thirdly, admit specifically both attitudes and actions. So I'm coming to you and this is what I've done or this is what I said. When I said and then say it. Specifically. Fourthly, acknowledge the hurt. And I know when I said that, and I know when I did that, that that had a negative effect on you. I know that hurt you tremendously. Fifthly, accept the consequences. You might have to fix something. You know, when I, uh, when I was upset and I slammed the door... And the china that we had gotten on our trip to London (laughs) broke. I may have to, I may have to fix something. I may have to make some kind of restitution. Sixthly, alter your behavior. Alter your behavior. I know that hurt you. I want to make it right by God's grace as much as I'm able. And going forward, this is what I want to do. And this is how I want to do it. And then lastly, ask forgiveness. Will you forgive me? So address everyone involved. Avoid if, but, and maybe. Admit specifically what you've done. Acknowledge the hurt. Accept the consequences. Alter your behavior. Ask for forgiveness. Now that's from the person who's seeking the forgiveness. For the person who is granting the forgiveness, I want to give Peacemaker gives four things that are involved in that, four. And these are four promises that we make when we say, that person asked to forgive and I said, yes, I'll forgive you. When you say, yes, I'll forgive you, you're making these four promises. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not dwell on this. So if you're somebody who broods, And they ask forgiveness and you say, yes, I'll forgive you. But then you go in the backyard and you sulk about it. And you go to your mother-in-law's. No, don't go there. Go. I've got a good mother-in-law, by the way. I could go to my mother-in-law. But you go to your friend and you're sulking about it. And you're talking, I will not dwell on this incident. Secondly, I will not bring it up and use it against you. 
Now, let me just stop here for a moment. Some of you are thinking, but, (laughs) that's the thing, right? Everybody goes, but. (laughs) But some of you are thinking, but this is not a one-time thing. He or she does this, then they say, will you forgive me? And then tomorrow, maybe later this afternoon, they do it again. So here, when we say we will not bring it up again, we're talking about the instance for which they've asked forgiveness. If, if they do it again, we need to reconcile again. And so it is perfectly legitimate to then say, you know, you've done this again. And then thirdly, I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not talk to others about it. Now, sometimes that might be for counsel. And so there are instances, of course, where wisdom dictates you get counsel on how to handle it. And you may even tell your spouse, you know, I'm having a hard time with doing this. I'm going to need to get some counsel, some godly counsel. I am not going to trash you in this. There may be reasons to do that, certainly. But here, what we're talking about is retribution using other people. I'm not going to go and slander your character to other people. And that happens in marriages all the time. People go and talk to other people about what a louse they married. And then I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our relationship. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our relationship. So it is heady stuff to be able to humble ourselves to forgive someone else and make those kinds of commitments. But remember, dear friends, Jesus says if we're not willing to do that, it calls into question whether or not we have experienced the forgiveness that he gives to us. I'll just say this about that. The forgiveness that Jesus has given to you and given to me is infinitely greater than any forgiveness for any wrong you have or will ever experience. Do you understand that? And some of you have been greatly and grievously wronged, and I am not minimizing that. On a human level, what some of you have experienced is far greater than anything I've experienced. But if you're, if you're, so if you're comparing your, the wrongs you've endured to the wrongs I've endured, many of you have many more than I've had. But if you compare that to the wrongs that God has endured, And that God has forgiven. There's not a person in this room who comes close to the infinite offense that has been committed against God Almighty. And God took the initiative to do all the things that we've talked about in deciding what to do about it and initiating reconciliation with us. And that's why in Matthew 18, Jesus gave this parable that you guys will do in your homework. You are doing the homework, right? Don't answer the question. But do the homework. And in this week's homework, you will read the parable, the story that Jesus gave in Matthew 18 of the person who owed. You'll read, it says in the NIV, thousands of bags of gold to someone. And the person forgave the debt. And the person for whom that huge debt was forgiven immediately went out and remembered that somebody owed them a few coins. And went and grabbed them by the throat and said, pay all of it. And would not be merciful. 
And that comparison is between the thousands of bags of gold, the infinite bags of gold that God has forgiven us versus any offenses that we have suffered at the hands of others. Then on page 46, then, how forgiveness works. Let's read this scenario quickly and then we'll be done. What will Jonathan need to do to forgive his wife? After the church service, Jonathan was talking to Robert about the upcoming holiday. The conversation was light and amusing until Robert said, I guess it may be a little awkward if you're back at your in-laws this year. What do you mean? asked Jonathan. Oh, well, my wife mentioned how you said some things that maybe you wish you hadn't last time you were there. Jonathan felt like he'd just been betrayed and sentenced all at the same time. How could his wife have talked to Robert's wife about that, especially since we, he had very clearly expressed his embarrassment and asked her not to talk about it with anyone? Jonathan felt hurt and angry. And then you see the things that Jonathan is going to need to do to work through that. They're all, you see four paragraphs there, they're all the four decisions that God made to forgive us. He's going to have to go through all of that and think through all of that. So I encourage you to read through those and then compare that to situations you have going on that have hurt you, that require your forgiveness. Do the homework this week. Lord willing, we'll see you next week. Let's ask the Lord to go with us. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to rehearse what you have done for us in Christ, in forgiving us, in initiating reconciliation and affecting reconciliation, making it happen. And Lord, the chasm that you have bridged between you and us is indeed an infinite gulf. It is one that we could, we could make no attempt, we could make no ground in, in covering. Only you could do this, and in your mercy and in your love, you have done so. And then, Lord, we interact with each other. And we have then what are relatively small slights compared to the infinite offense against the holy God that is our sin. And yet we find ourselves unable and unwilling to forgive. Oh, Lord, forgive us for our unwillingness to forgive. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict each of us with regard to our relationships so that we will emulate Christ and we will emulate what you have done to reconcile with us as we pursue reconciliation with each other. May marriages be healed as a result of your Spirit humbling the hearts of husbands and wives. Go with us this week as we do the homework and discuss these important issues together. We ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.